Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to SCOTUS 101. GC, can you believe it's time for another episode already? Zach, it's a curious thing about pandemics. They seem to make you lose all sense of the passage of time. (laughs) I completely agree with that. So tell us, what's been going on at the Supreme Court this week? Well, it's been another relatively quiet week, uh, but in notable news, the Chief Justice will not be presiding over Trump's second impeachment trial. Instead, Senator Patrick Leahy, the president pro tempore of the Senate, will do so. In other news, the Biden administration also announced that it's moving forward with a commission to study potential reforms to the federal judiciary, including to the Supreme Court. The commission will be housed out of the White House Counsel's Office, and while its membership is still being filled out, according to a Politico report earlier this week, Bob Bauer, Biden's campaign lawyer, Christina Rodriguez, a Yale Law School professor and Obama DOJ official, Carolyn Fredrickson, a former president of the American Constitution Society, and Jack Goldsmith, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, a Harvard Law School professor, and Bush DOJ official will all be members. Bauer and Rodriguez will co-chair the commission. And the court is taking now its uh, working recess. Every year, for the last few years at least, the court takes about a three-week working break for the last week of January and the first two weeks of February, where there are no opinions and no oral arguments. So unless the court issues some surprise opinions, we'll be taking a short working recess right along with them. And that brings us to orders. Zach, I got a question for you. Hit me with it. Can you dig it? Because the court can dig it, and it did dig it. Ah, uh, GC. Womp womp. <sighs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So DIG, D-I-G, stands for dismissed as improvidently granted and refers to a situation where the court took up a case but then decided it didn't want to hear the case after all. The court dismissed a technical arbitration case this week called Henry Schein versus Archer White. The order provided no explanation, but Professor Ronald Mann, writing over at SCOTUS blog, posited that the court dismissed the case because at the Court of Appeals below, the case involved two intertwined and very technical questions that couldn't be satisfactorily resolved in isolation. The Supreme Court, however, only called for briefing on one of those questions, and so he posits it found itself in a situation where it had to dig the case because it couldn't really address the issues. Interesting. Uh, much more interesting than your uh, than your joke, do you see? If, oh. I'm sorry to say. I'm sorry to say. That uh, was fair. Uh, The court also granted so-called Munsingware vacature in four cases this week as well. As a reminder to everyone, Munsingware vacature takes its name from a 1950 Supreme Court case where the court stated that when a case becomes moot while awaiting review by a higher court, the appropriate remedy is to vacate the judgment below and to remand the case to the lower court for dismissal. Here, two of the cases, one from Texas and one from Tennessee, involve challenges to COVID-19-related restrictions to abortion access, and the other two involve challenges to President Donald Trump's business dealings based on the emoluments clauses in the Constitution. In the two emoluments cases, Acting Solicitor General Jeffrey Wall has suggested to the court that it take this approach, and now we know they took his advice. 
For more information about Munsingware Vacature, D.C. Circuit Judge Patricia Millett wrote an excellent article about it in SCOTUS blog before she went on the bench. Uh, For those who are interested and would like a little more reading on the topic, uh, we will post Judge Millett's article to the SCOTUS 101 Twitter feed. Finally, the court ordered a Texas district court to consider the merits of a claim by a death row inmate who argued that he should be allowed to have his chosen clergyman at his side when he's executed. A state policy forbids any clergyman from being in the room. And so, to avoid discriminating, it prohibited any clergyman from entering the chamber, explaining that it was a security concern. The high court had previously ordered the lower court to consider the security rationale. The lower court found no serious security concerns. And so the Supreme Court has now ordered the lower court to consider the merits of the underlying claim. Now, this week for our interview, we are joined by new Ninth Circuit Judge Lawrence Van Dyke. This week, we have the pleasure of being joined by Judge Lawrence Van Dyke of the Ninth Circuit. He attended Montana State and Harvard Law, clerked for Janice Rogers Brown at the D.C. Circuit, and among other things, has been the Solicitor General of two states and an Assistant Solicitor General of another. We are fast approaching his first anniversary on the bench. Judge, welcome to the show. Well, John Carlo, thank you very much for having me on. It's quite honored. Oh, absolutely. Our pleasure. So my first question for you. Dick Van Dyke, any relation? I wish. I feel like I would maybe have a little more money or something, but he's never called or written or anything, so I'm, I'm afraid not. Too bad. Too bad. Well, back to, uh, I guess, the more boring boring life of, of law. What uh, made you decide to become a lawyer? Well, I never thought of becoming a lawyer when I was younger. I didn't have any lawyers in my family. Uh, I grew up in Montana. And uh, my family had small businesses. Uh, First of all, it was a small irrigation business. And then my dad bought a farm. And then he later had a heavy civil construction business that I actually worked in during and and after college. And um, I just expected I'd take over that family business, um, which is why I got my undergraduate degree in engineering and a master's in construction management. But um, after my wife and I had been married for seven years and we had a couple kids we made the very disruptive decision to pack up the family, drive clear across the country from Montana to Massachusetts and attend law school at Harvard. And it was quite a culture shock for our young family. What led you to that decision? Well, some things had changed with the family business and those resulted in me uh, deciding I needed to find another job. So I'd asked myself, well, what am I gonna do now? And I thought maybe I could go to work for another construction company or maybe an engineering company. I also considered going full-time into uh, church ministry. And and because I also had some vague idea that a, being a lawyer might be a cool thing, uh, I didn't really know that much about what lawyers did. We didn't have any lawyers in my family, as I mentioned, and, and we really didn't have anybody with an advanced degree at all, I don't think, in my family. But I thought it might be cool to go to law school, so I took a sample LSAT test, and I did well on that. So then I took the actual LSAT test, and... Um, uh, I did well on that and applied and got into Harvard Law School. And initially, uh, we were, my wife and I, we were terrified of um, living in a big city. And so we had actually decided not to go there. We were looking at going somewhere else. Um, but ultimately, after some soul searching, we decided to take the plunge and move the family over there. Um, and I'm very glad we did. It was a great experience. And after you go to Harvard, you clerked for Judge Janice Rogers Brown on the D.C. Circuit. How was that? That was amazing. Judge Brown is, is an amazing 
person. She's such an independent thinker um, in, in pretty much every way that you could uh, mean that. Um, after spending three years at uh, law school um, with professors and peers, most of whom I, I really liked but didn't see eye to eye with, I really wanted to, to clerk for a judge where that judge would be a mentor, a little more like-minded perhaps. And um, Judge Brown definitely was a mentor to me, not so much because she tried to instill a certain mindset in her clerk. She didn't do that really at all, or because she was even like a particularly active teacher. But a lot by watching how she approached the law and life in general, um, I think somebody that was around her couldn't help but be influenced by that. You, you come across with, uh, if you're around Judge Brown for very long, she believes what she uh, what she believes, not because it's easy for her, um, certainly not because it's always popular, but because uh, you recognize she's thought very long and hard about something and she's become convinced that it's the truth and she loves the truth, Judge Brown does, and she's willing to speak the truth uh, even though she knows it's going to cost her and make her unpopular, at least in some circles. And so uh, that's, uh, you just can't help but, but have some of that rub off, I think. Do you have any particular special memories of her? Well, um, it's funny because uh, when I was looking for for a clerkship, I had this idea uh, that, you know, again, I didn't know much about the law when I went to law school and I didn't know much about clerking. I didn't have any family members that were, were lawyers. And I had this idea that I really wanted to clerk for a judge that had regular lunches uh, with her clerks. I'm not sure why. I think that meant that I would have, you know, a lot of FaceTime and sort of informal mentoring or something with the judge. And as it turned out, Judge Brown uh, didn't have a lot of lunches with her clerks, at least not when I clerked for her early on in her tenure as a federal judge. But we did get a lot of FaceTime with her. Um, we would go in, you know, we'd go into her office to talk about a case. And, and, and often we would come out literally four hours later and we might have talked about everything under the sun, except maybe the case. Um, and I'd be like, oh, my goodness, I need to go get this bench memo done and, and get home. Um, Judge Brown's interests were so broad that she she never ran short of, of interesting issues uh, to discuss. And so that's uh, I think that's probably my my biggest general memory was just of, of clerking for Judge Brown was the amazing conversations we'd have about all kinds of things. Um, one other sort of maybe funnier memory or, or more specific memory was it actually involves Judge Brown and, and Judge Sentel, another wonderful judge on the D.C. Circuit. And I was a big fan of both of those judges. I applied to clerk for both of them and I interviewed with both of them. But after I'd started clerking for Judge Brown, I sent Judge Sentel an email on the internal network letting him know that he may not remember me, but I'd interviewed with him and I was currently clerking for Judge Brown. And she was perfect in every way except one, which was she didn't smoke cigars. So <laughs> if he ever needed someone to smoke a cigar with, please let me know, and I'd be happy to oblige him. So, and then after I sent that email, you know, I got to thinking, oh, man, maybe Judge Brown, she might find out about that. I better go tell her about it. So I went into her office and told her that I'd sent this email to Judge Sintel. I mean, I think I'd printed out a copy or something. And uh, her response was, you're a sycophant. Um, I didn't even know what a sycophant was, so I had to go look it up. So uh, that was my uh, Judge Brown, Judge Sintel experience. Did she have any um, traditions that she did with her clerks? Well, when I clerked for Judge Brown, uh, she was uh, pretty new on the, on the federal bench, uh, and I, I was part of her second clerk class. So she didn't really have um, any traditions uh, or a lot of traditions then. I, she did have us all over to her and Dewey's uh, wonderful home for a nice dinner near the end of the clerkship. I remember that. 
um, which I expect she did with every clerk class. I'm not sure, but she didn't, you know, Judge Brown didn't have those kind of traditions, at least when I clerked for her. The big, like I said, the big memory was, um, I guess you might call it tradition, is just the ability to have these wonderful chats about, it seems like, everything under the sun with her. Besides Judge Brown, who have some of your other mentors been? Well, uh, before I ever went to law school, um, one of my uh, key mentors was a preacher uh, named Mike Schrader that, um, and part of the, he was a big reason that I was actually seriously considering going into full-time church ministry um, when I instead decided to go into law. And, and, and as I tell people, I discovered that as prideful as I am, maybe I wasn't well-suited for ministry, but arrogance is kind of a, uh, almost a job qualification for lawyers, you know. So um, I decided to go into law. But but seriously, uh, Mike, uh, he, had a, he had a beautiful life. Uh, he showed showed me, I think, through example and through teaching how to live at the intersection of, of love and truth. And obviously, I'm still trying to apply that in my life. And, and he's passed he's passed away now. But he was a, a big mentor to me before I went into law. After, of course, I went into law, um, before I actually clerked for Judge Brown, I did spend a year at Gibson Dunn, uh, the law firm of Gibson Dunn uh, in D.C. And during that year, um, Gene Scalia, who's now uh, Secretary of Labor, was a huge influence on me. I got to work on one big case with him for almost that entire entire year, and I learned a lot about excellence from getting to work for Gene. He is an impressive lawyer, and he also has a great sense of humor. And then after clerking for, for Judge Brown, um, I went, instead of going back to the D.C. office at Gibson Dunn, we moved the family down to Dallas, where we worked in, in the office there for some years, and I was a big part of me going down there was to work with Jim Ho, who obviously is now Fifth Circuit Judge Ho, who was also a big mentor to me. Jim was always doing interesting pro bono cases, and he was very interested and active in helping his junior attorneys with their careers. And he always wanted to know what what a person wanted to do. And I, would, I personally was very blessed to come into his orbit. And I still count Jim as a great friend and mentor. And I say that like many of my mentors, like um Judge Brown, uh, Jim is stubborn about the truth. You know, when he believes something, he's very stubborn and he's willing, he's willing to um, say it, whether it's popular or not. And I think obviously that's an important thing. Mm-hmm. And I, after I, after I did that, you know, I, I got into, I got out of private practice and working in government and I was blessed to spend four years working as Nevada Solicitor General um, for Nevada's Attorney General, who was Adam Laxalt. And he is quite a mentor. Adam and I are very different people. He's obviously very active in political realm, and he's but he's such a principled uh, politician, and I, I don't feel like I necessarily always see a lot of those. So I learned a lot from Adam. Um, it was fun to watch him and to work alongside him and for him, and I count him as a dear friend. And there's a lot more folks. Uh, Nick Tutanich, who's now the um, now the uh, Nevada's U.S. Attorney. He, he was a colleague in Nevada's Attorney General Office. Mm-hmm. Great guy. Jeff Clark, who was my more recent boss. At Department of Justice, um, so very, very um, principled, hardworking guy that I, I, I was blessed to get to work under. Tom Hungar, who's a partner in the D.C. office at Gibson Dunn. I did a lot of pro bono work with Tom when I was at uh, Gibson Dunn and uh, very much admire him. And so there's many others. I've very blessed to have gotten to work for and with many amazing people in my career. You mentioned uh, the pro bono work that, that they've done. You've done a lot yourself when you were at Gibson Dunn. What were some of the things that you worked on? Well, um, so 
as you might imagine, uh, given my interest before law school that I had that I had gotten, I had uh, thought about going into full time ministry. I was very interested in religious liberty issues after law school, and so very soon after joining uh, Gibson's uh, D.C. office, uh, two other very junior attorneys and I, we came up with this idea of pitching a religious liberty pro bono issue. Uh, to the summer internship coordinators as a project we could do with summer associates. And our pitch was, well, this will, you know, there, there's got to be a bunch of summer associates that like us are interested in this work and it'll, it'll attract them to stay at Gibson. So we sold them on the idea. And when we, there ended up being six of us, three uh, basically baby associates and three summer associates. We ended up researching and then writing um, most of a brief in a case involving an Orthodox Jewish day school being zoned out of uh, somewhere in New York. I think it may have been Long Island. And uh, it was a, just an awesome experience for everybody involved. We were, uh, we were uh, all of us very young attorneys. We got to do work that we maybe normally wouldn't get to do uh, as such an attorney. So I was definitely bit by the bug. And I think it was a great, great opportunity for, I think it was a great marketing thing for, for Gibson Dunn too. So that was my, I did that with my big pro bono project I did before going off to, uh, to clerk. And then after clerking, I, after I went down to Dallas office of Gibson, and that's one thing I loved about Gibson is they were always very supportive of doing pro bono work and and working uh, for Jim Ho. I continued doing a lot of religious liberty pro bono work, and, and and then of course Jim went off to be the Texas Solicitor General, and and so I was doing some without him after that. But we, it, one of the cases we had, we successfully sued the state of Texas about an election regulation, and it was a real elected group of plaintiffs that that we sued on behalf of, including uh, the ACLU and. And what is now First Liberty, which is a religious liberty litigation firm. So it was sort of a strange bedfellows case in that case. We, we won that case. I also wrote several Supreme Court amicus briefs in several cases. Um, one of those cases was on behalf of the gays and lesbians for individual liberty in support of the Christian Legal Society. So I was really, um, I was really honored to be able to work on that case and uh, take the lead in that case. Um, and then we would moot lawyers arguing various cases. Uh, I remember mooting a Beckett Fund lawyer who was arguing a case in the Fifth Circuit involving animal sacrifice by a um, Santeria pr practitioner, uh, I think, in the Dallas area. So it was a real interesting, very different, but all sort of involving religious liberties. And then I think the last pro bono case that I actually helped with before I went into government service, and then you can't really do much pro bono, was um, involved in Mississippi church that had been zoned out of an area of town. So basically sort of came full circle to doing a very similar case to what we'd done with the uh, the Orthodox Jewish Day School up in Long Island when I first started. On the subject of working as an SG, has anyone ever told you you're a modern day Serenus Hastings? <laughs> Who's that? So Hastings, he was a lawyer and a judge and a politician. He traveled out west from New York to California during the mid-1800s. And he basically just hop skipped along from state to new territory to new state, serving as a politician, a judge, a sheriff, you name it. Uh, and and like and like him, you basically skipped from state to state as solicitor general. How yeah. did that? How did that happen? Um, so no, I never met, never heard of Mr. Hastings, but um, it does. I think my wife would probably um, say yes. That does sound like you, uh, and with raised eyebrows. Um, uh, I. You know, I, I've been very blessed. Um, I have a very patient, long-suffering family, especially my wife, Cheryl, and they definitely put up with a lot of moving over the years. Um, and honestly, I don't I don't think I would have been able to have um, the uh, 
the, the, the pretty exciting career um, that I was able to have um, and let, without being able to move around. We literally lived in the east, the west, the north and the south of this great nation. And, and, and while it was definitely a challenge to move, I will say um, that uh, it, it, it allowed me to have opportunities. Um, in fact, I don't think I would have the wonderful job that I have today, which is my dream job, um, if I if I hadn't been willing to move to Nevada, for instance, to work with uh, Attorney General Adam Laxalt right after he was elected. So, and, and, and the other thing I would say about being willing to move around, and I realize not everybody can do that, but but being able to move around means that now I literally have friends all over this uh, nation, uh, friends and former colleagues that I got to know uh, through life and the law, um, Texas and the East Coast, D.C., um, all over because of being willing to move. And that's just a huge blessing. At Christmas time, you, you're you very aware of that when you get get out your Christmas card list, right? What were some of the similarities and differences between each of your solicitor general positions? You know what? I'm glad you asked that because, you know, people I think just have an idea of state solicitors general offices that is that is usually sort of built off of the idea of what the federal solicitor general's office is, right? And people are more familiar with that office. Um, and I always try to make sure people know there's quite a bit of variability between the state solicitor general offices from state to state. Um, one funny anecdote, when I first moved to Montana, someone, uh, I, I was talking, I, I think it was to like a, a former solicitor general and someone told me, they said, uh, so just so you know, the office of the solicitor general in Montana is literally just that, my office, uh, my literal office. Uh, so, and whereas, you know, so it's one person. And in, in, in Texas, there was, I think, almost two dozen attorneys uh, in the Solicitor General's office. And in Nevada, I was sort of, uh, sort of the middle ground there. It was uh, a small but amazing team of folks. So very different composition and also a very different sort of work that you do. And the Texas SG's office has a large staff, I think, in a lot of ways operates like the Federal Solicitor General's office on, some, on the front lines of many of the biggest national cases in the country. In Montana, I actually litigated more in the trial courts than in the appellate courts, believe it or not, because um, oftentimes a, a, a case that was very important to the state of Montana might actually have been a case brought in the in the trial court there in state state trial court. Um, and then in Nevada, that was uh, sort of the Goldilocks, um, the, the perfect uh, the perfect mix, I guess. We did everything from state and federal trial courts. Um, all the way up to doing a lot of uh, amicus briefs and trying to get cases granted in the Supreme Court. So it really was, and we had a small team of about four of us. Uh, and and you, you get such a broad swath of everything from uh, tax issues to state criminal law issues to federal habeas issues um, and a lot of multi-state issues. So there are, there are, but I do also want to note that there are some similarities in state SG's offices, regardless of, uh, you know, not, notwithstanding the differences. And one is that I think in all of the offices, I, the three offices I worked in, um, you usually get to work with uh, amazing attorneys from other states when you're a state solicitor general. So even, you know, in Montana, the smallest office I was in, we got to coordinate with other states, which is great because you, you build this great network of, of professional relationships with other fantastic state attorneys. Um, and the other is that regardless, it may be different uh, forums you're working in, 
but you're almost always working on high profile important litigation. So it just depends on the state, you know, where that litigation may be at. So it's always interesting, amazing work. You also served as a, as a deputy assistant attorney general in the environmental and natural resources department at DOJ. What was that experience like and what did you do? So um, that was very different. Uh, it, it, yeah, you know, I got that's where I got to work uh, for Jeff Clark, who was who and still is, I think, the uh, AAG uh, there in that uh, over that uh, department. And Jeff is a is a very driven, principled person, and I think was really um, trying to, to do a great job there. Uh, he's another person that's stubborn about the truth, um, and I really enjoy that. You know, uh, I enjoyed all of my my colleagues there, the, the, the leadership team, the, I guess you call it the political leadership team that I was part of and worked with, but also the career folks that worked for me. I was very impressed with, um, I had 80 attorneys. It was a very, um, it was a very different job uh, there than what I had done before, because in most of my, in most of my private practice and most of, and, and being a state solicitor general's office, you're a, you're a um, generalist, right? You take on all kinds of cases and, and, and that helped prepare me for my current role as a federal judge um, there. And part of the reason I was interested in that job was because it was a specialty, you know, it's environmental and um, public lands litigation. And so definitely more specialized. And I had 80, you know, also um, before that I had supervised a small team of maybe a half a dozen folks. Whereas there I had almost 80 very talented trial lawyers that worked for me at the Department of Justice. So it's very, very different role there. Um, unfortunately, it kind of, I mean, fortunately in the sense of I'm very glad I have my current job, but unfortunately I only got to spend about eight months there. So I was just getting up to speed, so to speak, when when I ended up getting appointed to this job. But it, it was a neat uh, neat job, wonderful to be able to work in in the Department of Justice, their main justice. It's, it's um, every day you go in that building and uh, definitely an, a, an amazing institution. How did you get to become a judge? <laughs> yeah, I, I still ask myself that question. Uh, uh, no, no idea. No, um, you know, honestly, I think it, a lot of it was being in the right place at the right time. And no doubt, um, you, nobody would be surprised to think I, I, that there was some providence uh, thrown in there, too, I think. I, always, I, you know, ever since law school, I thought it would be wonderful to be a federal appellate judge. But I'm, I'm not not that dumb that I thought that, you know, I recognize that the odds are were probably about the same as being struck by lightning, right? So um, when Judge Bybee here in Nevada announced that he was taking senior status, I think what what really worked in my favor and what helped me to be considered and ultimately appointed, uh, confirmed and appointed to this position was um, a combination of the fact that I had obviously spent four years working as the state solicitor general here, and I had some very highly regarded folks from Nevada like uh, – former Attorney General Adam Laxalt in my corner. And that obviously helped uh, and, and was imperative. Um, I think it also helped that I had strong support across the country, right? So, you know, the the, the White House folks and the, and the various folks that are considering who to fill these posts, you know, they when, if they're hearing from people across the country that they uh, have a, had a good view of me, I think that helped a lot. Um, and so it was sort of a combination of the support at home here, I guess, so to speak, and then and then also um, support across the country from folks I'd worked with in my various jobs, and then also as, you know, representing states. Your confirmation hearing was 
not only contentious, but you were the subject of some really harsh and unfair criticisms. Do you have any thoughts on the confirmation process? Well, it was definitely contentious. Um, you know, that wasn't a surprise to me. Uh, my wife and I, Cheryl, uh, my wife Cheryl and I had, had talked beforehand, and we had agreed that, um, you know, I had run, I had run for, for state judge uh, in, in an election before, and that was challenging. And, uh, and so we knew based on, and I'd, and I'd worked in the public eye in my role as Solicitor General um, in these states. And so we knew that it was going to be tough. Um, we knew that it would probably be contentious. We didn't know how it would be, you know, you can't forecast exactly how it, things will play out, but you, you know, it'll probably be tough. And um, so we weren't surprised. It does hurt to be attacked like that um, and vilified, uh, but I definitely was not surprised, but I, I will say this. Um, while it was no doubt, it was tough in the, in the moment it was challenging and, and tough. What I remember most about that process is the the amazing support and um, just kindness that so many people showed me from old law school friends um, to people I'd worked with around the country, uh, the, the lawyers, a lot of them, uh, a lot of the lawyers that I worked with wrote letters of support, uh, which is super helpful. My non-lawyer friends um, that you know probably didn't fully understand everything that was going on would send me notes. Um, and it's such a, I was genuinely overwhelmed by the um, kindness of so many people. So I, I, it is a contentious process. It's challenging. And I don't know what we can do to try to fix that. Um, but it also what comes out of it is there's a lot of great people in this world. And I'm very, very thankful for that. And very mindful of that. So you're coming up on your one year anniversary on the bench. That'll be January 2nd. What are your uh, reflections on your first year? So I, I really love this job. Um, it, it really is my dream job and nothing um, actually, you know, I, I pinch myself and, and it's, it uh, is what I hoped it would be. Um, I, the only, in, in, in almost every respect, I love getting to work with my um, clerks closely on trying to get cases right. I love my, my judicial assistant is, is a woman I, I uh, knew from back in the Nevada Attorney General's office and she's amazing. Uh, she came over with me. And uh, the only thing I would say, and, and the cases are, are super interesting and my colleagues have been great to work with. The only thing I would say that has been less than pleasant surprise is the sheer volume of the job. I I clerked on the D.C. Circuit, as we talked about, uh, not on the Ninth Circuit. And so, and of course, you know, it's, it's you hear all the time, the D.C. Circuit doesn't have a very heavy caseload. Um, and uh, I would definitely say there's some truth in the fact that the Ninth Circuit has seems to seems to, at least in my experience, have a much heavier caseload. And it, it's not an exaggeration to say that I've I've worked more weekends since starting this job on average, I think, than in any previous job I've done. Um, so the workload has been an adjustment and, and a little bit, you know, when you when you when you dream of being a federal appellate judge, I think you dream of sitting and pondering long hours about, you know, esoteric legal issues. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a raging river. Uh, so you don't have a lot of time to sit and ponder, but I have an amazing staff, great colleagues. And like I said, a wonderful judicial assistant and, and things really, and I think I'm starting to finally sort of plane out and, um, the last couple of months starting to sort of get on top of it a little bit. I don't feel like I'm drowning. So it really is the best job, uh, that, that there's, there's just a lot of it. Given that most of your first year has been uh, uh, in 
COVID land. Have you been able to develop any traditions of your own with your law clerks? Um, you know, I when I first started, I had several folks. I obviously had clerked and had some idea of, of some traditions, but I, I had talked to a couple folks that gave me some ideas about things that they did with their judge when they clerked, and and I made a little short list. Um, and I've tried to do some of that, notwithstanding the pandemic and the and and the, the workload. I, I usually eat with my clerks either either out or um, or in chambers. Uh, probably once a week at least, and 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 they they definitely get lots of FaceTime, uh, probably more than they prefer sometimes. Maybe uh, we we typically have the clerks and my assistant Jan over to my house about once a month or so for uh, dinners, or we go to Jan's house, who happens to be an amazing host and cook. So uh, we'll, we'll, we spend a lot of time together. It's kind of like a small family, which has been wonderful. We've actually done a couple shooting outings. Uh, I, I do some uh, competitive shooting from time to time. And so we did a couple of those with the clerks and, and everybody came out uh, with, with uh, no injuries. So that's good. Uh, we we floated the Truckee River, which was a blast. I'd never done that before, uh, even though I'd lived here for some years. Uh, so that we're gonna definitely going to do that every year, hopefully. And of course, uh, in honor of Judge Sintel, we will occasionally smoke cigars together. But uh, smoking is optional. Uh, do you keep any special mementos uh, in your chambers, either from your career or your life before the law? <laughs> so I was a little surprised at how big the office is they gave me. Um, and it's so big, I have I actually took my home gym and put it in my office. So I have my home gym in my office. So I don't know if that counts as a memento, but uh, I've got, got that here. And then um, I've got a challenge coin collection that I've sort of picked up over the years uh, in working in state AG's offices and, of course, Department of Justice. And I also have a collection of bobbleheads, um, including my Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas bobbleheads that I that I uh, got over the years. Uh, and uh, I've told my clerks um, that when they roll off each year, they, they have to buy me a bobblehead of themselves. Apparently, you can go get yourself, get a, you know, send a picture and get a bobblehead by yourself. So. Um, my hope is to have a sort of a, a shelf full of my former clerk bobblehead. So we'll see if that sticks. I hope it does. And uh, let's see. And finally, I have I have the bullet uh, over there framed that I used to harvest a bull elk with my uh, pistol years ago in Montana before I went to law school. I keep that around to try to remember who I was before I got all educated and civilized. Well, Judge, it has been such a pleasure having you on. And we're, I'm going to want to ask you one final question before we let you go. That is, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Hmm. So, uh, well, I let's see, I, I probably want to talk with Justice Scalia and ask him where he went wrong with his son, Gene. Um, I'm just kidding, obviously. Um, I... A uh, huge fan of Gene and was an honored to work with him. I, you know, it'd be an honor to talk with Justice Scalia about anything, obviously, right? Or, or even just uh, just get to fish with him. And I'm not even that crazy about fishing. So, uh, but you know, in addition to that, I, I think it, I, I wouldn't mind. You know, more serious note, I guess I wouldn't mind uh, talking to either Justice Thomas or Justice Alito about staying humble and the role that they're in. You know, they both. They both seem to me to exemplify um, sort of the attitude. They, ha they have a gravity about their jobs, but they're not puffed up or arrogant about it. And, um, you know, I'd like to, I don't know, I'd like to hear from them their thoughts on, on how to do that. Uh, so that, that's, I suppose, um, one thing that I'd be interested in talking to one of the sitting justices that I admire. 
Well, Judge, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. I sure appreciate it, Giancarlo. And and, uh, thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. All right, Zach, moving into trivia. Are you ready? As ready as I'm going to be. So, you know, for the last few weeks, I've hit you with some heavy stuff, history, Supreme Court cases, and you've (laughs) you've returned the favor. So I thought, let's keep it light this time. The theme this week is SCOTUS nicknames. And a shout out to our spectacular interns, Nicole and Emma, who helped me come up with the trivia questions with this week. So Zach, if you get stumped, it's their fault. Well, now I know who to ask for help stumping you for the next episode. (laughs) Number one, which future justice while clerking at the court was nicknamed Shorty by another justice? Ooh, I don't have a clue, GC. Who was it? Elena Kagan. In 1987, she clerked for Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, who gave her the nickname Shorty because at six foot two, he towered over five foot three <laughs> Justice Kagan. Interesting. All right. That's a, that's a great question. All right. Number two, who was given the following nicknames? Big Bill, Big Lub, and Sleeping <laughs> Beauty. Those are some nicknames, uh, GC. But I'm going to guess uh, William Howard Taft is the, uh, the justice with those nicknames. You are correct. He earned several of these nicknames, the first two, Big Bill and Big Lub, because he was a hefty 350 pounds. But Sleeping Beauty came from his wife based on his habit of dozing off at parties, at operas, funerals, and even at church. All right, number three, you ready? Uh, I'm ready. Which justice was nicknamed Old Bacon Face? Well, I actually know this one because I've heard it before and thought that is, that's a terrible nickname. Uh, <laughs> I think it was Justice uh, Samuel Chase, uh, who, who is known as Old Bacon Face. You're right. It was. He was notorious for having a very reddish complexion and perhaps also for his sizzling under the collar disposition. One of the reasons he was the only Supreme Court justice to be impeached, although he was uh, eventually acquitted by the Senate. Good to know. All right. Which justice is notorious for being called the Lone Ranger? Ah, that would be uh, Justice William Rehnquist. That's right. When he was an associate justice, he was uh, well known for his frequent solitary dissents. And lastly... The building itself, Zach, has a nickname. Do you know what that is? I don't. I just know it as the the Supreme Court building. (laughs) What's its nickname? Also called the Marble Palace. Oh, that makes sense. Well, that's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.